Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with an English conductor, whose guests conducted all over the world, conducting in the concert hall, as well as opera and ballet. She was taught by the great Russian pedagogue Ilya Musin, and she is the co-founder and artistic director of Women Conductors with the Royal Philharmonic Society, a groundbreaking program to encourage women into conducting. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Alice Farnham. Alice, it's lovely to meet you, to speak to you and to see you. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Yes, Good. I'm Omicron free at the moment anyway. So. Good, me too. And I hope hopefully you're triple jabbed. Yes, I am, as of about six weeks ago. So Yeah, yeah. And we're yeah. in the run up to Christmas and you've just told mm-hmm. me you've just finished your book. Uh, which is all about conducting, which yeah. sad, sadly we won't see until January 2023, you were saying. How long has it taken you to write it? Um, well, I suppose on and off about a year. Um, it's with, um, I mean, it's on and off between doing other, yeah. other you know, my, my, my main job. Um, and I found uh, the times that I could do it were when I had those sort of, uh, a decent enough time to really focus on it I couldn't just dip in for half an hour here and half an hour there it's um mm. yeah it's a slightly different way of thinking compared to learning scores but yeah. not totally different so and what will we uh, expect to read when we buy I will buy yeah. it in January 2023 <laughs> is it a technical yeah. manual is it your thoughts on no. everything um, yeah okay, it's right. more yeah it's it's not a technical manual although actually it does include a little a couple of sort of mini guides um yeah. but it's what I'm hoping it is is a sort of demystifying of conducting and so mm. it's in a way it's more for the layman than for the conductor so I, I think there are a lot of fantastic books out there about conducting but they they're really for people who are already interested in it or who um, already know quite a lot about it for people in the music industry and this is sort of hopefully I, th- I think it would be interesting for people who work in music but I think also it's for people is maybe a bit more radio four than radio three if you know what I mean <laughs> that's a perfect analogy <laughs> that's very good still I, so, I think it's part of this podcast to, to try and demystify what us as conductors are and what we're about yeah, um, yeah. to try and prove that we're all just human beings who have normal lives we just happen to have a bit of a weird job um yes uh, and, exactly. Yeah, and I do the same on my Patreon page that, and uh, some of it's highly technical and some of it's just you know, Mike the person. Uh, and, yeah. you know, I think that's yeah. it's important. Um, as yeah. you said, there's plenty of books out there who can show you how to how to do a, an end beat and how to twirl in five and seven and 13. Um, you know, uh, sometimes we need some of the other things. So I'm yeah. looking forward to it. Yeah, it's I, yeah, it's been a it's, a it's been an interesting thing to do, but it won't be out for a whole other year. So no, no, okay. Well, in the meantime, let's go right back to the very beginning. Uh, the mm. most I can I've read about you is that you were an organ scholar at St Hugh's Oxford and St Thomas's yeah. Church on Fifth Avenue, New York. So I'm assuming mm-hmm. the keyboard, uh, piano, and organ was your instrument. When did you start? Did you come from a musical background and family? Yeah, I did. I actually, I start. Actually, my first instrument was a trumpet, and I Ooh. and I carried on with the trumpet the right the way through. But it sort of quickly became my second or really third instrument after the piano mm. and organ. Um, 
I yes I, I started the trumpet when I was about nine and I came from a musical family my my father was a was a clergyman and my mother was a teacher primary school teacher she did a lot of choirs and things as well children's choirs and uh, so there was a lot of music in the house but I um I my sister was a very good she was very good at the cello she's older than me and uh, my parents were very keen that I didn't learn an instrument that I wasn't as good at as her and they so mm. they sort of steered me in the direction of something completely different mm. which mm. also I think suited my quite noisy personality so <laughs> so they suggested the trumpet but kind of made it feel like it was me who thought of it you know mm. um and uh so yes it was actually the trumpet first but then I didn't actually take up the piano until I was 11 which is actually quite late but I as soon as I started it I just completely fell in love with with it and sort of didn't stop practicing mm. um so yeah it's funny that parents do that isn't it I mean my wife would have loved my daughter to have had violin lessons of either yeah. of my daughters to have violin lessons of me. To me, I thought that was the most hideous idea of all um, to yes. teach you at your own children. And I know plenty yeah. of musicians who agree with that uh, yeah. and would rather their children chose a different instrument from their own or yeah. especially from their siblings. I think that's a very wise choice. Yeah. Otherwise, there's yeah. a competitive element, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I really appreciated that with my parents, actually, that they were very careful. And, and in fact... You know, they wouldn't let my sister touch my trumpet because they uh, thought that she, as soon as she picked it up, she would be able to play it. And then I would just give up, you know, and uh, <laughs> um, and I, I really appreciate that, actually, because it wasn't a sort of competitiveness between us, which was which was really great. Um, I'm assuming yeah. being a trumpet player, you were in bands, wind bands, orchestras. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I, you first met conductors. Yes, I was. I was in. Well, I was in. I was in a lot of orchestras at school, and then I was a founding member of the National Children's Wind Orchestra of Great Britain, mm. which was when was I about fourteen or something? That was in nineteen eighty four, um, and that was really fun because the thing with the trumpet um, playing in an orchestra, um, especially a school orchestra, is. You, you get to do a lot of bar counting <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. and you don't always get the tune or you get it and then you know you have to sit there and it was it was so exciting to play uh repertoire where you actually got to play all the time it was brilliant for sort of mm. building up stamina and stuff and uh, and I think actually my very first ever paid job was playing offstage trumpet in uh Verdi Requiem <laughs> What Watford Town Hall when I was 14. I got five pounds. Brilliant. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I suppose you have a choice, don't you? You, are, you either head towards something like a wind band or a wind orchestra where the trumpets are going to be yeah. utilised and used more often, or you yeah. do what Daniel Harding said he did, which was, you know, sitting on fourth or fifth trumpet in his school orchestra, he decided to go and get the score out of the library and see what everybody else was doing, and that sort of piqued his interest in conducting. Um, yeah. You know, that's... It's difficult, isn't it, with the with the trumpet? Because, as you said, repertoire choices can mean that you sit there doing nothing for a long time. Yes, exactly. And there's this, and I think also in terms of the sort of orchestral sounds and things that I was excited by. I remember, um, you know, loving to be in the middle of the orchestra. And actually, that is one of the advantages of being a trumpeter. You do have time to sort of sit and absorb it and everything. And and also as an organist, which was you know quickly becoming my my first instrument, 
I loved the big rich sound that you can make on an organ if you were able to get your hands on a big enough organ which was yeah. always a bit of an issue but I um but actually I really missed the fact that it, it felt all the time with the organ particularly that the big sort of French romantic um repertoire that's really fantastic on the organ that you're basically trying to reproduce an orchestral sound yes but uh, I'm sorry to all the organists out there but an orchestral <laughs> An orchestral sound is better, sorry, yes. um, and or breathe, breathing and more. And so I was sort of wanting that sound, but I wasn't quite getting it from the organ. I actually used to play the trumpet and organ at the same time. That was my little party trick. Oh, wow. Um, I play the trumpet in my right hand and the organ and pedals with my left hand. Play the trumpet voluntary. It's quite fun. But um, yeah, I really miss that. I, I really sort of was yearning for that sound world, actually, mm. and getting it as sort of third or fourth trumpet at university and things because I was yeah still getting into orchestras but I wasn't the best mm. uh, um you mentioned university I'm assuming it was yes. Oxford was it Oxford yes it was yeah, yeah. and were you reading yeah. music well I was oh actually originally I, I got into read classics um mm. I, I did Latin and Greek A level and I really enjoyed it and I I, I really wanted a career in music but I didn't think I would be able to have one and the sort of the kind of thing at school was, um, oh, you know, the fear of somebody daring to go into music as a profession was mm. sort of not encouraged. I mean, it was by my music teacher, but not by anyone else, really. Yeah. Um, so I thought I'd read classics, but I got an organ scholarship as well. And the, the, the tutor at St Hughes, the music fellow at St Hughes, John Warwick, said um look if you want to change to music we, we'd welcome you'd be really happy because you have to do quite a lot of tests to get the organ scholarships that sort of um and then when I got to Oxford and I realized how incredibly hard classics was <laughs> I, I really it was really hard and yeah. I I sort of realized you know when you do a levels you don't quite realize the difference between that and the university degree mm. and I really really um missed studying music and so I changed after I did a year of classics and then I changed to music and it was in the old days of a full grant and all of that stuff oh, yes, so yeah. I just did another year and you know at the cost of the taxpayer <laughs> um, <laughs> so I remember those yeah. days well I, I, it sounds like we um, I, I was born in 1970 um me too yeah yeah we're the same age yeah. and uh, yeah, those happy days when, you know, mm. some, the, the, the taxpayer paid for me to go and practice a violin for four years in a practice room. Yeah, the, those days are sadly gone. Um, I know, I know. We're, I feel we're very, very, very privileged, weren't we, actually? Yes, we were. It at the time. We were. Um, you've been conducted, but we haven't talked about you actually conducting. Did it start at university or before? Uh, and how did it sort of creep in? Um, or did it not yeah. creep? Did it suddenly just land at, at you? It was really strange, actually, because I, I was um, very frightened as an organ scholar. I had to conduct the chapel choir, I had to run the chapel choir mm. in the college. And I was absolutely terrified of it. I mean, I really, really cannot tell you how at 19, the idea that I would become a professional conductor was completely unimaginable. <laughs> um, and I, but I actually had a boyfriend at the time who was really um he was he was going to be the conductor he's actually a lawyer now <laughs> he did conduct for a while but he chose a more sensible career path but um uh, I was 
quite envious of all these ultra confident Oxbridge types, uh, mostly men, but mm-hmm. there were some women as well who were conducting and seemed very confident. And I, it gradually dawned on me as I sort of went around Oxford playing trumpet in Messiah and all those sort of things and doing all these different things, realizing that not they were all confident, but they weren't all necessarily particularly good. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I, I sort of realized, look, you don't have, I, I had this idea that to conduct, you had to know absolutely everything before you dared to stand up in front of people. I really believe that. I don't know where I got that idea from, but I really believed that. So I just thought, well, I can't possibly know everything, especially not in a place like Oxford where there's so many clever people. Yeah. Um, and, but then one day, well it was just because I really had to do it I I gradually got more confident and then the music college we did um foray requiem in the college music society in my second year and I said look I'll I'll conduct it and I I every rehearsal I um realized I was actually really enjoying the rehearsals even Mm. though I sort of dreaded them and I and then I I actually realized that I it gradually dawned on me that I enjoyed that side of being an organ scholar more than playing the organ yes. being in a cold organ loft and all of that I enjoyed the social interaction which is something that I'm you know was always good at so it's sort of I hadn't really thought about the fact that it is about social interaction and, and that yeah. is playing to my strengths really so it was very from the time I left Oxford I had this vague idea that I wanted to be a conductor and it got stronger and stronger and stronger over the sort of the following few years. The next name that leaps off your biography uh, is a name that's cropped up on a few occasions on this podcast, as I'm sure you yeah. can well imagine. Yeah. Uh, you end up going to study with Ilya Musin in St. Petersburg. Yeah. yeah. How long were you there? Um, how did you get there? Was there a, was there a British Council grant or something like that? I mean, I suppose looking at our age, because we're contemporaneous, you know, the Berlin Wall had come down when we were 19. Yeah. So yeah. actually it wasn't quite as hard to get there. But And what do you remember of the great man um, uh, uh, and studying with him? Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. I, I, I went there, uh, I went initially to do a, an, a sort of audition. Mm. Um, I sc- scrabbled together some money to take part in a, it was a sort of summer masterclass. Um, and, uh, and I, but it was also to audition to go return. And I got together funding for three months, mostly just through friends and family, actually. Mm. And um, I didn't get any grants because it's very hard with conducting. I mean, certainly then there weren't really grants for conductors. Um, And so I I spent um, three months there. And then really, as that came to an end, I realized that that just wasn't anywhere near like long enough to be there. So I I actually ended up staying three years in total. I went back and did things like sold my trumpets <laughs> and um, did a course in teaching English as a foreign language. And that sort of helped fund while I was there. And thing, you know, fees were very cheap in those days, uh, yeah. certainly compared to now. The cost of living was very low. Uh, I was very kind of felt very guilty about this, but there was a financial crisis in 1998 and uh, that meant the, the ruble really devalued. And so my my 
uh, pounds went a lot further. Mm. Uh, and I got an English teaching job, which was relatively well paid. Um, uh, so and with the qualification and everything. So I did about sort of 15 hours of teaching a day. So that's sort of how I funded it. Yeah. Um, and the cost of living, you know, it was very cheap. I mean, I don't think it is now, but it really was then. So, um, but it was fantastic. I mean, Musin, when I went there, he was 93 mm. and still very much alive. Um, he died while I was out there actually in 1999, mm. um, which was very sad, but sort of what we expected um, to happen. Yes. And then I stayed, I stayed one more year with his assistant, Leonid Kochmar, who's um was his assistant and a staff conductor, head of opera at the Marinsky Theatre. So, um, yeah, it was incredible. I mean, Musin is, oh, gosh, I mean, I know you've had people like Sean Edwards on on, on here mm. and we, we, we were all just wax lyrical about how wonderful he was, but he really, really was. And it was a fantastic technique to learn. And actually one of the things that I really found really beneficial he is a very inspiring he's an immediately a very inspiring man who's sort of very charismatic he'd kind of turn somebody who was just sort of politely beating time into a much more uh living sort of human energy yeah and that was immediately very appealing and he had sort of instant effects on people if they did a master class with him but what what sort of quickly I realized once I got there was that I needed longer yeah. I needed um to properly study and I had that sort of thing that happens a lot when you're learning something new I did really well at the beginning and then I reached a plateau and yeah. and it felt like I was getting worse but I probably wasn't getting worse but it was you know and then and then I sort of realized the more I understood what he was asking of his students, the more I realised I needed to be there and properly be absorbed in it. Mm. Um, but, um, oh God, I mean, there's so much I could say, but I could talk <laughs> for the whole podcast on him. So <laughs> well, maybe you might we'll, want to shut me up. No, 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 definitely not. I mean, that's the point is that, you know, yeah. there, are, there are, there are, you know, I, I suppose a handful of great names who are, the great conducting teachers you know you can yeah moose probably at the top with your panel are very close you know yeah. underneath who who is you know who's i i was taught by him for two weeks and, oh, and yeah. again again you know his name has cropped up on here fairly often and often yeah. people say we don't have no idea how he did it because he hardly ever said anything but he did yeah. sort of teachers and then there's sarovsky and there's you know gustav meyer yeah. and people like that harold faberman but yeah you know Musin is the guy that everybody knows about I think he is and actually what I found what was so I think kind of special about him and it, it's not in a way so special if you think of the context of it being in Russia that it's about systems and you know you only look at the great string players in Russia yes. the great pianists the great singers the great actors you know even with the Stanislavski technique there's a, there are systems and what's so wonderful about it is that there are systems there's a technique and it's very very strong mm. but it's only ever in order to express yourself musically or yeah. you know as an actor or whatever it's it's there not just for technique's sake it's not separate from the art itself and that was his constant sort of demands were technique but only ever if that was expressive and if it wasn't expressive then it wasn't technique you know yes. but at the same time if it was just too expressive then it wasn't technically clear so it was this constant kind of battle that as a student you were 
and as a conductor still today you're constantly in that sort of thing of trying to find the right way of bringing the two together absolutely he really he really had he really had worked that out I mean I think that's what makes him so special that uh, he was a he was a student who found it very hard early on and his hands didn't work Mm. particularly well when he wanted to get onto the conducting course in the you know beginning of the 20th century so he worked out he, he worked it out and I think um often we talk about conducting being a sort of um something that you can either do or you can't and he would argue no actually to a degree it can be taught yes yeah um yeah. like anything really. mm, absolutely I want to go back to a point you just made then and I, I think every conductor is in this place most of the time in their brain when they're working, yeah. which is when you're, you know, you're trying to shape and mold the sound and the music and the architecture, and you're constantly thinking, should I be using my technique to do this? Should I should be using my personality, my gestures, and my mm. face to do this? And you're mm. constantly right, you know, sort of on a knife edge between the two. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously, using them both at the same time would, is also wonderful, but sometimes it doesn't yeah. work, you know, and you think, well. No. Actually, maybe I need to be clearer here, uh, and let's yeah. go go to, to something very technical. Yeah. And then there are other times you think, no, clarity isn't working. I need to do something else. I need yeah. to express myself more. Uh, yeah. And you're constantly yeah. fiddling, aren't you, in your brain yeah. um, mm. when you're working? And I, yeah, I, I think so. And I think what Musin was able to do was actually say he was actually able to say, no, that gesture is only technically good if it is expressive as well yes. as technically yeah. good and it's and but that is again is a ty- dichotomy because it's not always as simple as that and and actually another thing I always loved about him because I think there was a bit of a a kind of there was a little bit of a school of thought sometimes around that time when he was you know around in the 90s and was well known mm. outside the eastern block the former eastern block people used to think, well, it's all very well, all of these ideas, and they're wonderful, but they don't necessarily work with a Western orchestra. And I, I don't think that's true at all. And I no. would say that I use my technique that he taught me on absolutely everything I ever conduct, including very di- difficult contemporary music. Mm. But um, I think he also had this golden rule, uh, which is just great, that he'd just say, well, if it's not working with the orchestra, whatever you're doing, and it's not working, change it. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, you can get down that rabbit hole of, well, I'm doing this and it's yeah. just not working. And it's like, well, change it then, you know. Yeah. I know yeah. it's obvious, but sometimes <laughs> we don't always think about that. No, I mean, I can think of one particular orchestra. I generally tend to conduct too often with my left hand as well as my right. I know that. I hate watching videos of myself doing it. But yeah, I know we're, all, what, we're all guilty of that, I yeah, think, sometimes. Uh, but, I think so. it, there's one orchestra in particular. Um, I won't even say which country it's in. Um, but I, I've worked there fairly regularly. I've realised that they play an awful lot better if I just put my left hand in my pocket. Uh, <laughs> they play more yeah. together uh, and, and take it yeah. out very occasionally and do things properly. And I have to really think about it. You know, I'm going there again fairly soon. I'll probably walk in and think, right, put your hand in your pocket and conduct one-handed. Um, and, and they just seem to like it better. 
Um, yeah. and, and so not only are you, you know, as you said, if it doesn't work, change it, but it changes from orchestra to orchestra as well. You know, definitely, definitely. Point. Yeah. Mm. And that's that and country to country and yeah. orchestra to orchestra. And it's so strange, isn't it? I mean, things that work so well with one orchestra just don't work with another or, or it's the acoustic or, I mean, they're just so yeah. many different, different, uh, things that are going on. Mm. Um, and yeah. going on. I'm assuming you you would come back from Russia uh, when I see that you know you assisted at the Royal Opera House people like Simeon Bitchkoff, yeah. um, Benini, Grusin, Barry Wordsworth, and Welsh National Opera Lothar Königs and, and Michael Hofstetter. You know when you're assisting people like that, um, are you are you just adding layers of knowledge on to what you've got from yeah. Russia? I- no. Actually, what I did, I actually didn't go straight back to the UK. I okay. actually got a job. I got a job in Sweden at Gothenburg Opera. I was a, I got a job as a chorus master and an assistant because yeah. I didn't have a particular need to rush back to the UK. And I sort no. of realised the benefits of living somewhere else and getting a different perspective and all that. So I had a few years of sort of music staff work there as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, for me, I think opera, I do quite a lot of symphonic conducting, but opera is my main thing. Yes. And a bit of ballet. And I think for opera in particular, I think it, I really think it's essential actually to 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 learn that kind of apprentice yeah. way, you mm. know, of assisting fantastic conductors. I mean, men, you know, people on that list were amazing, but mm also assisting sometimes people who aren't so good or, or are doing repertoire that doesn't quite work for them or whatever and learning I mean strangely enough actually I found assisting I did I've assisted a lot of Italian conductors but it was actually when I assisted a conductor who wasn't Italian but on Italian repertoire that I realized what the Italians were doing because they made it look so easy I hadn't really thought about it but when mm. I saw it not quite working I was like oh I get it okay yeah mm that's what's missing now and so actually assisting people who aren't as good Mm. as the really great ones you you learn all the time and I also had at the Royal Opera House um I I did about 10 years of prompting um a couple of productions a year I was in the prompt box which Mm. is a is the best training for an opera conductor imaginable it is I mean it shouldn't really exist it barely exists anymore in this country Mm. Uh, you know feeding every single line to a singer and breathing with them and conducting them and you know it it, but I mean I work I I ended up I can't I wouldn't really mention particularly the singers that I prompted because some of them (laughs) quite well known Um, (laughs) but I um being in that incredibly close I mean just you know, feet away from, inches away sometimes from some of the best singers in the world and feeling them breathe and watching them breathe and and understanding the text and everything about that. It was just amazing. And in fact, people like um, Mark Elder and Ted Downs back in the day, they all started in the prompt box. That's right. That Mm. was their early training. And I feel very lucky because I I was one of the few, I was one of the last to sort of get that. Yeah. Um, Mm. And uh, I'm I'm so grateful for that. And also being in the middle of a brilliant orchestra as well, and feeling that sound around you. Mm. Um, mm. It was fantastic, yeah.
you've led on perfectly to my next question. It's like you're reading my notebook, um, <laughs> which was actually going to be, you know, you just said it yourself. You do you do a lot of work in opera, some in ballet, possibly more percentage of the year than symphonic. And that's all been guesting work. Um, would you be yeah. interested in being a music director of an opera house or ge the German GM Day, which is a, sort of a sticky yeah. topic on this podcast? Yeah. Okay, think of at least one conductor who hated being a, a general music director in Germany. That's interesting. Um, yeah. But, well, you know, w would that be something that you like or do you like the sort of six weeks as a guest going in and doing your own production and then moving on to doing symphonic stuff and not going yeah. to board meetings and all of that stuff? I think it's interesting. It's a really interesting question, actually. I I think so. Yeah, I think I I think I would always prefer that um, freelance uh, itinerant sort of way of working. I think yeah. what's lovely, it's really nice when you're working with certain companies and you get invited back and you build up a relationship with yeah. them. Um, that's really nice. So if you're constantly working with new opera companies. It's very stressful. I mean, it's always really nerve wracking, isn't it? The first yeah. time you meet a new orchestra or a new, mm. you know, set of singers or whatever, it's always nerve wracking. So it's really nice if you can go back to places where they already know you and trust you and hopefully, hopefully trust you. Um, mm. And so I like that relationship, but I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say uh, I would never want I, I don't think the German game day thing particularly ap appeals to me from what I've heard of it I've never really worked in Germany I have to say mm. but I I think all that admin um, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. you have to do I mean we all have to do a lot of admin anyway really yes. don't we um, and sitting on board meetings um, I got you know even at Gothenburg when I was chorus master and stuff I had to do a lot of meetings because the Swedes really love their meetings <laughs> and um <laughs> I used to sometimes be, I remember having a meeting for about a meeting, you know, <laughs> to discuss a meeting. We had yeah. a meeting about a meeting, you know, and I was like, oh, but we've just had this meeting. You know, I was like, I mean, it just feels like a sort of, um, and I, I think really that sort of rich, the variety of, of work I do, I just love so much yeah, and, yeah. and, and traveling hopefully will be happening again. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, who's, you know, a plum job somewhere wouldn't, wouldn't say no to. No, exactly. Jack um... <laughs> Van Steen said, you know, he realized that, you know, being a game day was basically 75, 75% admin and 25% music making. And that's not what yeah. he, he thought he'd signed up for. Um, you know, yeah. and so I, I think in that particular regard, you know, I don't think your, your thoughts are probably wrong. But as you said, if a plum job comes up, you know, uh, why yeah. not? Exactly. Um, it yeah. would mean that you wouldn't have time to do some of the things you currently do, like working in music well, colleges and and yeah exactly and, and also the teaching, which I really want to get on to. Yeah, um, which yeah. is you know you're the co-founder and artistic director of Women Conductors at the Royal Philharmonic Society. That's quite yeah. a mouthful to spit out. Um, <laughs> teaching, how yes. much of Moosin's ethos do you teach? Uh, is it? Of course, it will be. Uh, also sort of infected with what you've learned over your career yeah you know since being in St Petersburg um you obviously enjoy teaching um what do you get out of it and what what sort mm. of things do you teach especially to uh female conductors that you mm. probably don't teach to male conductors yeah well um I 
I think in terms of in, uh, how much of the sort of moose in teaching, I, I think a huge amount. I mean, really, mm. really high percentage, like about mm. 95% probably in a way. Yeah. Although, of course, the thing about the moose in technique and I swear, you know, about any good teacher, you you've got your sort of. Uh, you've got your version of it yes. you know so every yeah. I mean every I think pretty much every professor at the conservatoire in St Petersburg now is a former Moosin student well perhaps not now because it's 20 years since he died but um, you know they certainly always were but they yeah. still all teach slightly differently because um, you know it's yeah. your, as a human and as an artist you give your own version of it but I you know when I'm I quite often teach with Sean Edwards and mm. she and I do a few things together along, um, and I find we, we're sort of teaching the same language I suppose yeah um, so in that way it's very he's very much part of it but then I think it's all I think with teaching it's about what you were taught and in my case I was very lucky because I had a great teacher um not everyone does and a lot of people learn sort of as they go along as well but of course I also learned as I go, went along and there's mm. also lots of things I wish somebody had told me <laughs> so I try and teach that as well yeah um yeah. and so it's a combination of the two uh and then in terms of how I teach the difference with women I mean I I started the this conducting program in 2013 when Marin who I think has been on this hasn't yes she, she has yes. um uh, when she conducted the last night of the proms mm. and I was interviewed on Radio 4 on the world tonight very last minute they asked me to come and talk about it and I and this was 2013 and I was beginning to get some really good gigs and I was feeling pretty good about stuff uh, but it had been a very long you know it taken me a very long time to sort of make that career work and yeah. there had been some real boundary I mean there had been many many situations where I had you know written to people and been completely ignored and um, of course that happens to all conductors but my male contemporaries with exactly the same or less experience than me were not ignored you know and that happened no, no, no. a lot happened a lot in those days and um, but it was you know I was getting there so I felt quite confident but what I said in the interview I said look not many women because they said why aren't women being given all the top jobs in conducting and why are they be? and I said look there aren't many of us there are so few of us yes that's that's, right. that's the problem because women don't want to be conductors women just don't are not even considering it and um the interviewer said oh well presumably you'll be somebody who champions that and I and the next morning I woke up and I thought actually yeah why why aren't there more women conducting? And actually, yeah. this is going to be this. I need to do something about this. I can't. I'm in a position now. I'm sort of old enough and experienced enough that I can actually make a change to this. So yeah. I encouraged my main thing because I felt there's no point just saying we want more women having conducting jobs if there aren't the women there. Mm. If they're not coming through music colleges and stuff. Um, so I I set about initially working with sort of late teen sixth form and student age conductors and sorry student age musicians yeah. female musicians and just saying look you want to be a professional musician you're doing your training in an instrument or whatever but why don't you consider conducting because yeah. you've got the skills you're a good musician that's all you actually need isn't it really to start with and so we 
in very quickly it it gained I mean it was sort of the timing I think it all sort of came with a kind of new wave of feminism it was all around that time in 2013-14 and very quickly people liked the idea and then I got contacted by a lot of older women who said oh but I wanted to conduct and wasn't allowed to uh, or I wasn't I was really discouraged unlike I mean me myself I was actually encouraged to conduct but a lot of people my age weren't Mm. a lot of women so it, it just got bigger and bigger and now I mean I run a program in Australia the Perth Symphony Orchestra uh, and um, in Dublin at the National Concert Hall in Dublin and uh, various other things so I've worked with over 500 women now mm. Um, mm. and they haven't they haven't all become conductors but many of them have mm. and or many of them are training and getting onto that next stage. And I'm, I'm not saying, I mean, I think with some of them, they, they would have probably found that anyway. And I've been able to help them a bit. Um, but what I noticed, I mean, things have really, uh, have really changed. Uh, when I first started doing these workshops, a very simple thing, which is kind of shocking that this was the case, really. But one of the things that I you realize is very important as a conductor is that you need I can show this on a video unfortunately I have to say this as well because this is not but you need to be able to open your arms wide and sort of stretch your arms out and sort Mm. of welcome a whole orchestra Um, and actually young women particularly teenage late teens early 20s women were very frightened to do that and they would do it and then they'd immediately sort of put their shoulders in and hunch their shoulders in and conduct in a and sort of as if they're sort of protecting Almost themselves. Covering up, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and it didn't matter how often they they understood in theory because when they saw one of the others with their arms wide open, they realised they looked more confident. But yeah. their instinct was always to cover themselves and and just and that that uh, about um, three years ago, I noticed that I didn't need to say that anymore at least I did at the beginning but very quickly they kind of took ownership of that and they enjoyed yeah, it and everything. Yeah. so 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 what's great is I mean I think in society as well women are becoming much more confident than they were yeah um so yeah so little things like that the sort of body language that I think for women um I mean we're talking in generalizations here but generalizations are you know that, that that's the way things are but they generally I think body language can be misread so Mm. a woman who uh, a man who might look bored which isn't a great look for a conductor (laughs) but for for a woman they might look unconfident which is even worse yes you know (laughs) and so so it's that kind of reading of body that we do talk about and actually I mean, you know, all the way through my conducting studies, there are usually one or two women around. And Moosin always taught women, yes. always. Um, but uh, we were always in the minority. And what was so lovely about doing these courses, I mean, I'm completely used to it now, but the first time was just all these women in the room. It was a different atmosphere. Yeah, it yeah. really, really was. And, and just to have that moment, I'm not saying that, you should then do I mean I don't I'm not particularly in favor of single sex education but this was just a moment you know let's mm. just have this chance and then go off and study with with men as well you know I'm mm. not saying it should be like that the whole time but just have this moment where it's just women in the room maybe I mean we often have male um musicians playing because we have string players we often have male musicians playing um 
pianists and string players and stuff um but usually the majority of that are women mm. um and that's quite uh, an unusual position for a woman to be in and it's quite refreshing and it feels like you can then have conversations about what you wear and that kind of stuff that you yes. that you would feel uncomfortable about in front of men mm. well I find it fascinating I hadn't thought I mean even that gesture you know the yeah. You could call it the sort of wingspan. Um, yes. It's very difficult to describe this on a podcast, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but you know that wingspan. I can see. You know when you when you describe it and showed it, you think, yes, of course, that is a, a gesture that you know us male conductors do all of the time. Um, yeah. Especially, you know, I've got, I'm a big guy with a wide wingspan. I use it for moments <laughs> of of getting the biggest sound, you know. But but yeah, yeah if if you conduct with your hunched over with your shoulders and you're trying to cover up, of yeah. course, you know uh, that lack of confidence. And it, it's wonderful to see that you're talking about body language because I know Marin also talks about language. You know, yeah. the words that she thinks yeah. that you know have have a different meaning coming from a female voice than coming from a male voice. And I've seen her teach that in videos online. Um, yeah. I think I, I mean it's obviously working because one of my Patreon supporters, Jen Winley, is um, yeah is now um, assistant and conductor at Western Australian Symphony Orchestra, and I, she talked yeah. very highly of the teaching she's had from you. You know, um, yeah. Well, and we've actually been. I mean, that's been one of the great things with Jen. We've been working on Zoom for. Yeah. Um, I mean, she's in Australia, and I'm yeah. in. London so we've been we've been having regular lessons on zoom which has worked brilliantly but actually that's the other thing with the um uh with with these workshops that I do with is body language that I actually work alongside for these uh, I do different things with more advanced conductors but I work along alongside a woman called Alma Sheehan who teaches conducting she teaches acting to singers right because what I noticed is working so much in opera I um, am sort of exposed to the drama side of stuff mm. and yeah. uh, staging and thinking a lot about the visual aspects of, of, of that art form and also with ballet as well, of course. But um, I noticed with singers that they, they are taught, because as a singer, you, you have to communicate with your, your instrument is, is you, is your yes. body. Yeah. So even from a very young age, you are communicating with your face and everything. You have to. You can't get out of that. And whereas instrumentalists, we're not taught about that at all. We're not taught. I mean, even to sort of like maybe just smile at the audience at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. have paid quite a lot. Um, and 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 that sort of you know concentrating face that a lot of musicians mm. have that that. Um, singers can't afford to have they have to have that open and that physicality and because she's teaching that and I, I'd worked with her a lot in opera and I'd seen the stuff that she'd done with student singers mm. to the sort of psychological confidence building stuff that she'd done with singers so I said look would you be interested in working with me with conducting she said, I don't know anything about conducting I said no I just want you to be there to to help with this and actually mm. we've you know we've developed this amazing stuff and she does during the first the, the, this weekend she goes off she takes them off she she watches them with me and generally doesn't say a huge amount but then in um sort of let's say after lunch on that first day she she takes them off for half an hour and does some stuff with them and I normally leave her just to it and, and they do all those sort of weird wacky drama games that <laughs> yeah, um yeah. That musicians are a bit scared of yes. um, but they all absolutely love it and she and just thinking of the fact that body language um 
is is incredibly important. Even things like, for example, as well, te- talking because she's a singer, she knows how mm. to use her voice and everything. And talking to uh, an orchestra properly, mm. clearly. Mm. And who you look at, you know, talking about that sort of eye contact thing of, you know, if you stare, like it, you end up looking a bit kind of psycho like at some <laughs> poor player. Yes. Or, but giving that way of looking at a whole orchestra, making them feel like you're looking at all of them without glaring at them all those sort of things and I think this is uh, it's really invaluable and it comes out of the sort of moosin thing of body language and acting yeah um which is part of conducting character and all those things but uh it's just great having her there and and uh, and I'm quite I'm very proud of that aspect of the course and having that collaboration with her sounds great sounds invaluable um things I'm very interested in body language and yeah I call it universal body language when I teach you that it doesn't matter what human being does that gesture it means something to us all sometimes consciously sometimes unconsciously we all understand what that means um yeah so it sounds sounds brilliant yeah I have one more thing, and I wonder whether you teach this or you don't. And it's a question every conductor has answered. It's about score preparation. When you come to learn a new score, do you sit at the piano uh, as a keyboard player, or do you use your inner ear? And do you start big, for the overall big picture, and go into smaller and smaller details? And for the geeks, and after 90-odd episodes, there are plenty of geeks who listen, are you a scribbler in of things? Are you a red, blue, black highlighter pens? Or are you a, a person who commits it all to memory and does it clean what's your score prep Um, routine Alice I wish I could all commit it all to memory and do it clean I found that harder and harder as I get older I I figure that that's because I've got so much music in my head but I don't know um I I do a mixture of all of those things I think when I start I I do use a pen I've got these um wonderful blue and the blue and red you know yes. the blue and red pen <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the blue and red pencil rather um which you can't rub out so you have to commit to that really yeah. but um yeah. i do a mix really of um i work a lot at the keyboard um but you know sometimes you're in a situation where you don't have a piano you know you might be in a hotel yeah. room um whatever um so i think your inner ear is really important as well i listen to recordings i listen to a lot of different recordings Mm. only kind of early on i there's a point where i stop listening to them because it it's quite off-putting but early Mm. on i mean i think what you know when we when we were young um you had to (laughs) you had to i mean they're in the libraries at university and stuff they had they had those great you know you could take out a record and put it on and put your headphones on and listen you know what read the score and everything and you could maybe if you were lucky get sort of four recordings of something that way or you could hire them cds from the libraries and stuff or you could buy them and it was very expensive um and now at the touch of a button you can listen to and now with all the streaming that's gone on there's even more i mean i i I don't I think it I mean to me it always felt that when people say oh I wouldn't want to be influenced by a certain conductor's thing and I think well there's some quite good conductors out there wouldn't it be quite good to be a bit influenced by them yeah absolutely 
It would be stupid not to try and take notice of what some of these very good conductors have done in the past. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I and and so I do I do a mix of those. And actually, with something like opera, for example, I, I discovered an interesting thing relatively recently that it's really good to listen to live opera performances because the Mm. tempi are much more realistic because you get Mm. something if you get an opera where they'll take a really slow aria because they're they're doing it they're recording it and then they can go and have a coffee and have a rest and do that and then do the next bit whereas in an opera they've got to sing the whole thing and they just can't take it at that tempo because they'll be dead before the end of act one so um all those sort of things um and even recordings that aren't very good you can hear the things that go wrong and you'll you'll see the danger moments particularly if you what if you listen to live performances um so there's all that um i do yeah i do mark things up um i do find um yeah I do a mix and there's I sort of find it's good to zoom in and out mm. of what I'm doing because I think if you get too bogged down in certain things you kind of lose sense of the whole so mm. you it's good to to do a mix of the two and keep that narrative going and that's particularly true with with well it's true with all music isn't it but with opera there's that always a narrative um and if that's missing if you've got stuck somewhere um in in that whole preparation then you can find it all a bit much and and that i i do also try and i mean i i'm i i know some conductors like to live on that sort of adrenaline of being quite last minute in preparation not not i'm not saying they're not doing it fast but they they like to have that pressure before they really learn whereas I I I really don't like that I I never want to feel panicked about learning a score so I um always try and I, I do a lot of scheduling of when I need to learn repertoire you know if I look at what my calendar looks like hoping it's not going to get cancelled <laughs> um, yes, indeed. for whatever reason then I I sort of think okay I need to do I need to start this piece that week and I need to start learning that then and I need yeah. to and I can you know map out so I've got a sort of clear idea because I, I have that anxiety dream I mean is that dream I'm sure we all have it or maybe we don't but of you know of suddenly conducting an opera that I've never learn and I have I forgot to learn it and I'm <laughs> on the podium in the opening night and I think why didn't I open the score for this opera before do you get that or is that just uh, me no I've, <laughs> I've never had that one um I had it as a player you used to think what you, know, yeah. you have to stand up players at concerto and open it up and think oh I've never looked at this um yeah, but yeah. I've not had it as a conductor maybe Maybe um, maybe because I used to play solos a lot less during my career and and now you yeah. know I, I make sure I do my homework I'm like you I I yeah. like to get things marked up and learned six months in advance yeah at least I mean as it happens you know I've got to learn Shostakovich six in three weeks in, in you know over Christmas and New Year to yeah. start rehearsing it in the second week of January and and to me that's it's a bit, a bit too close but then yeah. I've, we've also had stand-ins I'm sure where we've had to learn pieces in in 24 yes. hours or well, I remember, I remember learning Elgar 2 in four days over a weekend because of a stand-in yeah. you know and yeah. that's also another technique you have to learn um yeah and there's that sort of I think that sort of thing I don't get so panicked about because you you know I think we you know you when you get to a certain stage you know that you can yeah. do an okay job with very little 
time. It's yeah. just that you're, and I, I actually do find that I take longer and longer to learn scores mm. now because I think I probably didn't learn them very well when I was younger. Mm, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. It's an endlessly fascinating subject. Yes. Um, uh, but what, what I've discovered is we all do it differently, yet we all have the same objectives at the end of it. And yeah. you know, whether we're six, nine months out or last minute cramming, um, yeah. we all have the same things uh, in common. It, I it think. is. Yeah. It, and it is very personal. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think I like that way of chipping away at it. And I found that actually with writing this book that I had a similar attitude to that. It was just like, well, I'm going to put in my time on these things. And then then you look back and you think, oh, actually, I've, I've done all of this now. But mm. it, it, I, I did. I would never I couldn't bear the idea of having to s- s- scramble to a deadline. Mm. Um, uh, I just yeah, certainly, with, especially with something like writing a book, because that's completely out of my comfort zone as well. <laughs> If you are new to this podcast, you may not know that there's another way you can learn about conductors and conducting by subscribing to my Patreon page. You can hear interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers and hear their thoughts on conducting and conductors. You can read my diaries when I guest conduct. You can take part in group meetings with other like-minded fans of the podcast. You can read articles on conducting and conductors and also see videos of the great conductors. And you can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most places, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and the world of conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Alice Farnham. Alice, it's that point of the podcast where you must traverse the 10 questions that every conductor has been asked since episode two. And I always start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Okay, the sound of noise I love is young children singing in Mm. tune together Mm. and enthusiastically, that big enthusiasm. Mm. Um, the noise I hate is lots of children screaming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even if they're enjoying themselves, it can be just. Yeah, I, yeah. I just can't. I just realised I could never have been a primary school teacher because um, that noise of them in in a in a room, yeah. just screaming, just does my head in. And I even used to complain to my mum at my first my, uh, my when I went to nursery. I said, "Oh, it's too noisy." I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Which, so. you, you get some of these presenters of uh, children's and family concerts who say, oh, make yeah. lots of noise, and it, the sound is <laughs> definitely loud. Yeah. I um, mean, that actually, I don't mind it in a concert, uh, but I think it's that thing in a more enclosed space. Yes, you know, yeah, yeah. It just yeah. sort of does does my head in. <laughs> and a children's choir singing wonderful. I, I did for yeah. four or five years the Christmas concerts at the Liverpool Philharmonic with Alistair Malloy oh, with their, their melody yeah. makers and children's choir and, and to yeah. hear them singing their songs. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. It, yeah. it always meant Christmas started for me doing those. Yes. So, yeah. 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 Next one. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well, um, 24 hours is quite a long time, isn't it? Because yeah. uh, so it's not one thing. I mean, I would... If I could possibly get to the sea, I would. I grew up mm. in Norfolk and 
I uh, love the sea and for me that makes me immediately feel peaceful it doesn't matter which sea it is mm. um, as the, the sea or at least water mm. um, and preferably with the sun on my mm. face but obviously depends which time of year the 24 hours is um, <laughs> and uh, and then I, I think with that I mean my having a coffee with friends in a cafe by the sea with the sun shining is probably my actual idea of heaven. And then later in the day, I add later in the day, <laughs> um, the same thing, but with alcohol. Yes. But much <laughs> later in the day, more like the, the evening. I just stress okay. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds lovely. I mean, yeah, there's nothing like sitting with friends over a, you know, a, in a, I don't know some sort of pub garden that backs onto a beach or yeah. something like that I can yeah. think of a couple yeah. now but yeah, this, yeah it is lovely isn't it yeah yeah and probably yeah. having in between your coffee and your alcohol you've probably gone for a, a walk along the beach and back again that yes a walk, a walk along and a swim actually I yeah. love swimming in the sea I'm not one of those I might go swimming at Christmas on the um I, I'm going to, well, hopefully going to Cromer for Christmas and uh, there's a Boxing Day swim, although probably it won't happen this year, but um, I do sometimes do that. But otherwise I just swim in the in the summer, but I do like a good swim as well. Um, well, yeah. I'm, I'm going to file away the word Cromer for question 10. Um, meanwhile, <laughs> <laughs> question four, um, who would be a favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Well, you know, I'm going to say, I mean, I've already talked a great deal about him, but I'm actually going to say uh, Musin, mm. Ilya Alexandrovich Musin, because he was also a great conductor. Yes, he and was. And I think yeah. this is something that is sort of uh, often, I think, I think um, you know, con conducting teachers can get pigeonholed as great teachers. And actually, he was a great conductor. He didn't mm. have the career he deserved. Um, but he was a truly great conductor. He was he was brilliant um, and should have had that career. And that was a political thing. And it was a difficult time in Russia, in the Soviet mm. Union. But he really was. Um, so I would say him. And then, um, I mean, I think yesteryear, it's, this is a difficult one, really, because I suppose, um, are we, I mean, Heitink is so recently i mean yes. is that yesterday yeah that's today well, isn't it? i mean um, you know, i mean yeah but then the, that's the pro that's yeah. the problem i mean you know you could you could arguably put Heitink in as your answer to question five even though he sadly exactly. only only recently died but uh, exactly. yesteryear when does yesteryear start i suppose a second ago um mm. i don't know i mean it's difficult yeah. isn't it um yeah. i mean would he have been your choice for question five if yes i think he would have been yeah um but I, yeah, I think he would have been. I mean, I actually chose for question five. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, again, you know, really, really difficult to say because there are so many. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I actually love Ricardo Shai. I mm. love his work. I love, I love it. And what I find, um, we often get very mesmerized by the, by conductors with you know a bardo and people again conductor i hugely admire beautiful hands and mm. everything and 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 but actually what i what i find so interesting with shai is that i so often found that i was drawn if i listened to lots of different recordings of certain pieces i'd find i'd gravitate to his nearly yeah. every mm. time um 
similarly actually with Charles Macarius with Mozart yeah yeah particularly Mo- Mozart operas I'd be listen I'd listen to all sorts of different ones and then I and then and sometimes you know on Spotify you don't always realize which which comp- which conductor it is and then it was like ah oh, that's the one it always to me felt like it was gave me all the sort of answers that I was looking for in the music but um that's very personal and and uh yeah it's really hard they're really hard questions they are well I will say though and and I'm surprised by this because I I really like a lot of Shai's recordings is that his Mm. name has rarely appeared as the answer to that question um to question five and I'm glad it finally has uh, if it has a tall in the past. Um, oh, because, well, that's yeah, good. I, yeah, I really like his conducting. And I, as you said, his recordings are wonderful. Um, so mm. thank you for bringing up uh, a name that has been, you know, criminally underused as the answer for question five. Um, oh, well, I'm... Yeah, so thank you. Good. <laughs> and as for Ilya Musin, I will add a link to the blurb underneath the, this episode yeah. because I've watched it. He was quite old. And I've watched him just suddenly stand up in the middle of somewhere and conduct Don Juan, I think it was. Oh, it's amazing. Yes, that. it's amazing, it's isn't incredible. it? Incredible. I'll put yeah. the YouTube link up to prove that it yeah. wasn't all about his teaching, that he just he just no. stands up and conducts. Yeah, it's a really, really it, enjoyable it, performance. It's wonderful as well, because at the beginning of that, he stands up and he looks like this little old man. I think he was 89 then. Yeah. And he looks like a little old man. And he even, somebody even, he's standing there and somebody even has to sort of, looks like they say to him, are you going to start? And he goes, oh, yeah, sorry. And he's like, he, he's kind of a bit lost and he's not quite sure where he is. Yes. And then he starts conducting. <laughs> and it's, you know, yeah. it's fire. It's it is. Amazing. Yeah, it's well, it, it, it's, it'll be in the blurb underneath, dear listener. So yeah. go and watch Musin Conducts. There are yes. plenty. Of, there's a, there's at least two long videos yeah. of him teaching, yeah. which are rather dry and yeah. rather dusty and rather academic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lots of Russian that I can understand with an English yes. uh, somebody narrating it. Yeah. But that that says a lot more about him. That Don Juan. Yeah, I, I think so. And actually, with those long videos, um, they you really have. I mean, if you cut. I've sort of isolated a few little bits of those that are just uh, just absolute wonderful yeah. examples of him where he demonstrates stuff just with two pianos, yes. but it is very dry. And it it's, I think if anyone is interested in learning more about his technique, I think it, I would recommend with that. I mean, actually there's, <laughs> there is a, there is one little clip of me not conducting, but I'm sitting in the class. Mm. Um, Cause I think it was when I first arrived when they did those, but anyway, um, he I think if you really there are two masterclasses of him and if you watch it through really um bit by bit don't try and look at more than about half an hour of it at a time Mm, mm. and just really um there's a whole he does a lot for example on Tchaikovsky Fifth Symphony um and if you you know really go through that you'll find a lot but I I think the thing is about that there was a lot of footage of it which they did before he died and then it was Mm. put together after he died and I think it's sort of missing a little bit of something you know Uh, but it's better than nothing but that those that one of him conducting Don Juan is just incredible what is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Right. Well, I think probably it is Maxwell Davis's Comilitonin, which is a big sort of epic opera um, written for student um, singers. It was for the Royal Academy of Music and the Juilliard. We did it at Welsh National Opera with Polly Graham directing it. And it was done in that sort of... Uh, 
um, it was a promenade opera. So the orchestra were on stage and the uh, singers were moving around the space, mm. moving the singers around. Mm. So um, it was, and it was fantastic because it meant that the singers were very close to the audience and they were young singers. It was a youth opera. So they oh. were sort of 27 were the sort of oldest members. And it's quite a big orchestra. So it meant that there weren't any balance issues, which are often are in opera. Yeah. Um, but it was a promenade opera, but it was Maxwell Davis. You yeah. know? So um, <laughs> it was pretty, it was a lot of um, time signature changes. I mean, just a lot of complicated um, stuff to keep it and hold it together. But I mean, WNO Orchestra, fantastic. They're so responsive as well. So they were mm -hmm. able to change with everything. The other thing, the other piece that I would say at the moment, maybe it's because it's fresh in my mind, but I've just conducted um, L'Eur Espagnol, Ravel, mm. one act opera at the Royal Academy, along with Janice Kiki. Um, and Janice Kiki was fab, as was L'Eur Espagnol, but it, I found it incredibly hard and I can't quite put my finger on why I found it so hard. I think it's because... It's basically like conducting 55 minutes of recitative. Yeah. There's there's very little through music. You know, yeah, you just yeah. get into a couple of bars of a waltz and then it changes to something else. I mean, there's lots of pieces that have that, but I found it was a bit like conducting jelly. I, <laughs> I just couldn't. I just, and because it's got that fluidity that a yeah. lot of Ravel has, but at the same time it needed precision and, um, very difficult vocal lines, which they did brilliantly. I just, I just found it incredibly hard, and I still am not exactly sure why. And I really enjoyed it, but um, yeah, very, very hard piece to conduct. Um, I think it's. I think we all have those, don't we? The pieces that um, that you know, you think, oh, this will be okay, and then you do it, and you think, well, that was actually so much harder than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Going back to Max, uh, dear, dear Max, who I'm, I did meet when I conducted oh. the, my choice of the hardest work I'd ever conducted, which was World's Bliss. And that's appeared, two other conductors have chosen exactly the oh, same really? piece. So <laughs> I wonder whether, yeah, Max seems to be, you know. Max is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he obviously gave us quite a few uh, headaches over over his yeah. um, over his time as a composer. Thanks, but, Max. But, re <laughs> but real real soul, I mean, it was. Oh, God, it was, yes, yeah. It was incredible. It was wonderful. Mm. It's a wonderful opera. Mm. I, I'd love to do it again. Yeah. Really love to do it again, but well, especially since I did all that hard work. You know, yeah, well, that's the thing. I'd love to do World's Bliss yeah. again in a sort of sadomasochistic yeah. way. I'd love yes. to. <laughs> <laughs> when travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Um, if it's longer than two weeks, then Marmite. Ooh, what a brilliant <laughs> choice. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> and for the non-British people out there, Marmite is a sort of yeast extract, isn't it? Is that what it is? Yeah, it's, yeah. Read it on toast. Uh, it's a sort of beef, is it beefy sort of taste? Um, I think... Umami-ish. Yes. I mean, there's a hot, in, in English, in, in Great Britain, you know, uh, some, for something can be Marmite. You, you lit, lit, there is nobody on the planet who, when you ask them, do they like Marmite, goes, well, I'm not quite sure. They either go, no, I hate it, or yes, I love yeah. it. Uh, and, yeah. and I'm a Marmite and, lover, yeah. Are you? Yeah, I mean, very few people um, who haven't. I think you love it if you grow up with it, or you yes. hate it if you grow up with it. But if you if you try it as an adult, I don't. I think you always hate it. Yes, I think, I think. that's probably true. Um, 
And then, of course, in Australia, it's Vegemite, which, Vegemite. sorry, to sorry, Jen, but I don't like Vegemite <laughs> so much, Fermamite. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right. I grew up as a, you know, as kids, we had it on yeah. on crumpets. Uh, yes. and then, oh, course, that's the best. Yes, oh. yeah, yeah. With, with all butter and yeah, no, yeah. Um, yeah. I may I may have to have some later now. That's yes. it. <laughs> <laughs> What's the one thing you would change about being a conductor? What's the one thing I would change about being a conductor? I think it would be. This is fantasy. Okay. Um, I would wouldn't take I, I could learn scores really really quickly mm, mm. they just didn't take so long to learn yeah yeah uh, I mean when you come to as you said it earlier on when you come to cram learn you, you know you learn yeah. it as much as you can you yeah. know um and I you know I was the same I, I'm always the same when I've got to cram learn something in four or five days yeah. but you're right um to, to, to just try and absorb because we get sent so many notes to learn yeah. Uh, buy the scores yourself you know um he has to be able to spend less time in the study just hunched over it yeah i think yeah spending less time um on my own in a study i think if that yeah. was i like i like it to a degree but just yes. a bit shorter time yeah yeah i like yeah. that time but it should be shorter mm. get the same amount of work done <laughs> yeah yeah oh, i agree wholeheartedly i agree number nine what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Um, well, when I was a when I was a kid, I wanted to be a presenter on Play School. Um, <laughs> and, and <laughs> bearing it, and 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 I think actually not probably not totally dissimilar. I, I think I would have quite liked to have been a, a chat show host because I always think yeah. that I'm I was quite good at chatting and. I always thought it seemed like quite an easy job, really. I mean, obviously it's not, and people do it really, really well. Um, and there's a massive skill to it, but um, I just think that seems like an awful lot of fun. Yeah, well, uh, it's not a chat show, but it's basically I'm doing a sort of chat show host job doing this. Yeah. Some people have complimented me on it. Others yeah. have said nothing. But, yeah, it's, it's definitely an art because you've got to know when to butt in. And so actually, sometimes I've struggled to butt in at all with some people. Uh, but also just to run with the ball and, and you know, yes. not just stick rigidly to what you have yeah. down in your notes. Sometimes yeah. you think, do you know what? There's a, there's a nugget coming at the end of this, and I'm going to go there rather than where I thought I was going to go when I wrote yeah. down my, my notes. And I, yeah, yeah I, I've really enjoyed doing this. And as for Play School, for non-British people, Play School was uh, uh, on children's television, um, really aimed at sort of toddlers up to sort of yes. six, five, six, seven years old. And Play School, the presenters were always ended up sort of, you know, making things out of handicraft and getting covered in water and gum. Yeah, and all that sort of, yeah, it's, yeah. You know, but they were, and also, also they telling were stories and telling yeah. stories and and be and being. I thought it was really funny to watch yeah. adults being childish. <laughs> yes, I thought yeah. that was really yeah. really funny, yeah. and I thought that was something I quite like to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well. Um, uh, sort of what we do sometimes as conductors is uh, have to suspend <laughs> yeah. the, the you know the disbelief and sort of you know act out a role occasionally when you're conducting and pull a face that you wouldn't normally pull um we sort of have to do that now yeah. i did say before i would read out number 10 that i'd file away the word chroma because to me anybody uh... mentions chroma 
it's got the word crab following it, which is yes. one of the most beautiful foodstuffs in the world. So let's see whether chroma crab appears in your answer to question 10. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, I was I was really struggling with this one because I thought, oh gosh, all these sophisticated conductors, they're gonna they're gonna name something incredibly, you know, wonderful and sophisticated. And, <laughs> you and need to listen to more episodes. Alex. Very <laughs> inexpensive, uh, very expensive restaurants and stuff. Yeah. Um, but so, and I was thinking, well, look, if it, if if it's if the world's going to end, I might as well have something incredibly fattening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because that would be fine. But yeah. actually, now that you say that, I mean, chroma crab, I do love chroma crab and um, it is the best crab. So I rarely have any other crab anywhere mm. else, but I always have it when I'm in chroma. Yeah, brilliant. And what would you wash down your chroma crab with? Actually, I think I think I think it goes rather well with beer, actually. Mm. A light, yeah. a light bitter or a, a light, yeah. more lagery type for oh, okay. me because yeah. I'm not a massive bitter person. Mm. Um, but I like to have the crab quite simple. So just with some bread mm. and oh, and some samphire if, if it's in mm. season. Yeah, that's absolutely the best because you don't need to do anything with that apart from a bit of butter and boil it because it's so salty and tasty as well. It's just mm. the best. And if you have that with with crab as well it's wonderful well uh, in the last two or three questions oh well question seven and question ten you've actually made my mouth water uh i love <laughs> i love uh, a dressed crab and marmite and yeah that sounds wonderful and wonderful it's been chatting to you for the last hour or so alice i've really enjoyed it um thank you for coming on and i hope in the near future maybe over a chroma crab uh we could sit down and chat again yeah, lovely. Thank you so much for asking me. It's been really, really interesting. Lovely to talk conducting. Great. Thank you. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with another English conductor who started out as a professional trombonist, but after winning the Cadaquez competition in 2010, his career as a conductor took off. He was assistant conductor at the Halle, and from 2015 to 2020, he was the music director of the Orquesta Sinfonica de Castilla y León in Spain. But until then, bye-bye.